All right, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. Can you open up your Bibles or your apps, whatever that looks like, to Mark chapter 14? We've been, uh, been out of Mark for a couple weeks now, and we're turning uh, back to Mark 14. And uh, as we have been observing, beginning with Jesus entering, entering into Jerusalem, things are slowing down now in Mark. And we see unfolding in chapter 14 and 15 the final days of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion, his betrayal, his, the trial, his death. And at this point, Jerusalem is, is packed. Josh did a wonderful job last time he preached, just giving us a, a sense of what that city would have felt like. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover is upon him. The population of Jerusalem just would swell multiple times um, in population, and it's packed. And we're told in verse 1 in chapter 14, it was two days before Passover. As Jesus is moving towards his cross, the resistance to him is intensifying. The, the scribes and the, the Pharisees, are, religious leaders, are plotting for his demise. And we see even this painful reality, the people that are most close to Jesus begin to, to fall away, begin to fail him. Some straight up betray him. Others lack courage to, to stay as his follower. And, and Jesus alone is going to be standing by himself. No one is propping him up as Messiah. He, he is alone moving towards his cross to fulfill his mission. Though we do get glimpses like this unlikely woman who had insight to his worth and his value, but those closest to him are falling away from him. And he alone, steady, resolved to move towards his cross, his mission to save his people. But before that, a meal. It's almost Thursday, Passover, the day before what we recognize as Good Friday. Just hours from his cross. And we're going to look at three, three narrative sections this morning the preparation for this meal, a betrayer announced in the midst of this meal, and then the meal itself. So we're going to read verses 12 through 25 this morning, and then we'll pray. On that first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening... He came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him and to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, 
but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it, all of it, they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, or the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Join me as we pray. Lord, the, the words that we just read, your words, and the meaning of, of what you communicated to those, those first disciples, and the meaning that, that it needs to have upon our heart, Lord, we, um, we, we can't grasp and understand it without your help. And so, Lord, I ask that you would come and be with us, Holy Spirit, would you would you teach us this morning? Would you, would you allow our affections and our awareness of what you have done, what you did by the pouring out of your blood, the breaking of your body, that, that we consider this, this last supper. Um, let, it, let it have its intended impact upon our heart by your spirit this morning as your disciples today. Um, help me, Lord. Help us by your spirit. May you be honored, Jesus. May we be filled up. Amen. Amen. So we begin with this preparation, the preparation for the Passover meal. Now, what, what was the Passover? What is the Passover? Well, let's take a moment just to reflect on that. Well, we look back to the book of Exodus. If you remember, Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver God's people. And God had brought down judgment upon uh, Egypt, Pharaoh, the, the people there. It was, it was plague after plague after plague. And, and Pharaoh was resistant. He would not let people, God's people go. And so one last plague came, the 10th the plague, the, the death of the firstborn son. And Israel was commanded... The night before, that each home would take a lamb, a year old, without spot, without blemish. They would kill the lamb. They would take some of that blood, and they would use some hyssop, which was a type of plant, like a brush. And they would, they would don their doorway, the, the side posts and the lintel, the top of the, the doorway, with the blood of the lamb. And as they, after they did that, they would enter their home, and they would not to leave their home. They were supposed to stay there. And that night, they would eat a meal from that lamb, they would roast that lamb, and they would consume that lamb along with the unleavened bread, and they would be ready, suited up, ready to travel. And that night, the death angel would come through Egypt, and it says that it, the angel would pass over the firstborn in each home that has the blood placed over that door. And those who do not have the blood, judgment would fall on that house, and the firstborn son would die. It was a an execution of God's judgment, His holy judgment. 
and provision of a merciful way of salvation through the Lamb's blood. So the spotless Lamb died in the place of the individual in the home. So God did so, and preserving all who trusted in God by obeying Him and placing the blood on the door. And all who did not, God judged their Pharaoh in Egypt. And through that, Pharaoh finally succumbed to God's judgment. He released the people. God's people were delivered. And God commanded after that, that that Passover, that first Passover, that it would be a perpetual ceremony that Israel would do every year. And actually in Exodus 12, it tells us, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service or this thing that we're doing? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. So each year, every year, there would be this this sacrifice of the lamb, this reenactment of this first meal, a reminder of God's deliverance. The blood of the sacrificial lamb would bring deliverance of God's covenant people from their enemies, from enslavement, so they could be released to worship God, worship Yahweh. Now, fast forward hundreds of years. Here we are in Mark 14. And we read that the lambs were being sacrificed and this would be followed by the Jew eating the Passover meal. And in order to prepare for this meal on this year, Jesus gives instructions for his disciples. Now, just notice Jesus' divine foreknowledge and preparation in all of this. His cross is clearly ahead of him and he is moving towards that. But something is going to be unique about this meal about the attention that's going to be drawn to in this meal. You can even almost pick up on it. The disciples ask, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? The disciples don't know the magnitude of what this meal was going to represent or who it was going to be about, but Jesus comes into focus on this Passover night, this Last Supper, and almost has this like, covert operation feel to it, right? Jesus, this sense of secrecy. Jesus tells only two disciples. Maybe the clue is back earlier in chapter 14 that Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Maybe he, he didn't want all the other disciples to know. But even though Jesus knew all these Pharisees and religious leaders were plotting to kill him, he knew that there was a betrayer among his twelve. It was his mission to suffer and to die. It's why he came. So he sends two of his disciples to go and prepare this meal, the room ready. Josh helped give us this helpful picture of this, this, what it would look like, this low table and everyone reclining with rugs and cushions. The food is ready. The bread, the, the bitter herbs, the, the lamb. And the evening came and all the preparations are done and the Passover meal was set. And Jesus arrives with his twelve to have the Passover meal. Now, it's helpful to, to note that the Passover meal would be a family meal. You know, we, I think we saw the, the famous painting last week of just the 12, but the Passover meal was often eaten, would have been eaten as a family event. So women would have been present. Children would have been present. So it's very possible that this meal, there was more than just the 12 at that meal that evening. 
other disciples, children, women. And when we read particularly a fast-paced gospel like Mark, it, I was actually talking to a few people about, like, what's your reflections on the meal? You know, what do you think about the Lord's Supper? And it's like, it just, someone said, it seemed like it's so quick. Like, it was just like, they were like, and they were in and out. But this would have been a multi-hour event, a long night, the retelling of the Exodus story, a singing of hymns and psalms, the enjoying of the meal together. So when we dip in and it says the reclining and eating at the table, it's likely hours into the meal. And Jesus, on this historic night, makes this, this haunting statement. Verse 18. Of all the positive, beautiful things that we reflect on every time we take the Lord's table, it begins with this haunting, negative betrayal. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. I don't know if you've had anybody like really close to you break confidence or or break trust, betray you in like just a horrendous way. Uh, you get that like sick, gross sort of feeling in your stomach. I can imagine this moment, Jesus communicating this to the disciples. Since they were filled with grief, they began to be sorrowful, asking one another, is it, is it I? Or it could be understood that each of them asking, surely, surely not I. But Jesus eliminates other people in the room as he draws it in. If there were other people, and says, it, it's one of the twelve. It, it's one of you who's dipping his bread into the bowl with me. The one, one sitting close to me. I don't think it's, it's as if Judas is dipping the bread at the same moment and, and he points him out directly because there was still confusion about who that was. It, it's meaning it's one of the twelve. It's one of my closest closest people. The betrayal is not by religious leaders or elders or, scri- or scribes, but it's one of those closest to him. Though this is horrific, it was part of God's plan. Though this betrayal is horrific, it is, it is moving the Lord towards his purpose, his mission. We see this in verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In case Jesus hasn't been clear so far that he's communicated his predictions of his suffering, that he as Messiah would suffer and die, he states it again. As it goes for me, or or what will happen to me, it is because it is written of me. Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay down my life on my own accord. God is in full control. Jesus is the one moving towards his cross. He is the sovereign Son of God who will come and suffer and die in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And then he pronounces this woe on the one who does this. We know this is Judas. Better that he wasn't even born. We have to know that though Judas is called out in this moment, he is willfully choosing, he is guilty of betraying Christ. And even in that act, God is completely in control, fulfilling His divine plan of salvation. And these are one of those tensions of Scripture that we, we hold at times in mystery. The complete responsibility of men and women in their moral choices, and yet God working His sovereign plan 
for his good and his glory. And then we get to the meal. We get to the meal, the, the focus of it. We, let us not be conf- swayed, though, if a few verses only. This is, this is the apex of the moment. Now, I don't know how they transitioned from after being told that someone of, one of you is going to betray me. The awkwardness of that had to linger for quite a while. But, of course, Mark, the way he writes, he just progresses the story. And we move towards the significance of this evening. What Jesus would say would not fully be understood by the disciples yet. But soon they would. And so Jesus took, took the bread. That would have been customary part of that meal. And he, he broke it. He blessed it. And he gives it to his disciples. He says, take, this is my body. He distributes, distributes to them and then they eat that bread. Now, the, the, the word here, body, it's conveying more than just like his flesh. It, my body is communicating something like my whole being. Jesus is sharing his whole person with his disciples. When he says, take, this is my body, he's saying, here, I'm sharing myself with you. This is, this is my whole being that I'm giving to you in this moment. Eat of me. So the eight. And then they took the cup, the wine, and he had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank. This word, to give thanks, is where we, the Greek word where we get Eucharist, which you maybe refer to, or maybe your church upbringing was the reference to communion. Jesus, Jesus is initiating all of this in this moment. Notice all the words. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. He told them to take the cup. He gave it to them. Jesus is, is the center of this moment, and he's giving, and he's sharing, and he's moving them towards the, the reinterpretation of what these, these Jewish men have been doing since they were little boys, and what they would now know the true meaning of what the Passover was, what it existed for, and the fulfillment of what the Passover was ultimately in him. And this is where we zero in on verse 24. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, or the new covenant, which is poured out for many. So he, he had just given them a cup, and they, they drank it all. And after they drank it, he said, this, this is my blood. Now, to consume blood was forbidden by Jewish law. So this would have been a shocking statement for them to hear thinking that I just drank that, and Jesus just said this was his blood. The Old Testament Scripture speaks of, regarding the sacrifices, that the life of a creature is in the blood. So the blood was poured out on the altar for the atonement of the people, meaning its life for the life of the person. So Jesus is not just simply saying that he's going to bleed. He is saying he is going to be poured out. He is pouring out his life, emptying himself in death for the life of another. These are the words that are capturing for us what Jesus came to do and what his Passover meal meant, this last supper, what he came to do as Messiah. Jesus is establishing a covenant with his people, a new covenant, my blood of the covenant. 
This phrase, the blood of the covenant, points back to Exodus. Israel had been delivered from Egypt. God gave them his law, the book of the covenant. Sacrifices were made. Moses put blood on the altar. Then he put the blood on the people, consecrating them. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. What was happening that moment? God's people were entering into covenant by his words with the provision of sacrificial blood, sealed by blood. And now Jesus is showing us the way to God to give access, to seal and bind his relationship of his people to be atoned for would now be by the blood of his son, Jesus. And this is blood that will be poured out for many. That should... If you've been reading Mark, if you've been thinking about Mark, if you were those first hearers of Mark, your mind would maybe jump back to another moment. Where have we heard something similar in Mark already? Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A life as a ransom for many, blood poured out for many. His life as a ransom for many. Ransom, redemption, a price of release is this exchange that Jesus is coming to give for his people. As we read in, in Isaiah 53, remember our statement in verse 21, as it is written of him. This is what was written of him in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is the righteous servant who came to serve many and justify many and make many righteous, and he is the one that bore the sins of many, and he is the one whose blood has been poured out for many. What's interesting in in Mark is Rather than the, the roasted lamb taking prominence in his Passover meal, Jesus is the one prominent, front and center. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one whose blood will be poured out. He will be the final sacrifice once and for all. The suffering servant, the Son of God, who would be the substitute instead of his people experiencing judgment. The blood would be applied to his people and judgment would pass over the people because they find it in his broken body and his blood being poured out. So, like the first Passover, Jesus reveals that now by his blood, as the Lamb of God, all who put their faith on his sacrifice, their enemies are now defeated, their sins are now covered, and they are now set free to worship God by His substitution, by His blood poured out for you, for me. This is what was all unfolding in this moment. Now just to note, depending on maybe your religious upbringing, this is not a a moment where Jesus is saying that we are literally eating and receiving his blood, where it physically is turning into his blood or his body. It is symbolism in the same way that Jesus would speak of himself as, I am the way, or I am the door, or he is the vine, and we are the branches. 
So church, as Christians, we don't hold a Jewish Passover feast. We don't need to kill lambs anymore for our sins to be atoned for, but we looked to Jesus by faith. And so by faith, we look to the gospel work of what Jesus has done, and we enter into this new covenant by his blood. Not by ongoing repetition of blood and sacrifices of bulls and lambs, but once and for all because of what Jesus has done in his broken body, his blood poured out, and his resurrection. And this is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Or Peter, that our salvation comes not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood poured out for us like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus initiated this, what we call the Lord's table, communion. And we do celebrate a meal, but we celebrate this meal in a new way as His church, as God's redeemed to experience the benefits and the blessings and be reminded of the grace given to us by what Jesus did on His cross. And this is one of the two sacraments that Jesus would give His church, communion and baptism. So let's, let's consider some of these, these benefits that we remember, these, these things that God, these blessings that God gives us. We remember Christ's death and we participate in what he did for us. 1 Corinthians 11, 26 tells us as Paul is expanding and interpreting for us what Jesus did. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we partake of the Lord's table, we are remembering his death. And we are participating in what his death and all that he did through his gospel. We proclaim his death as necessary for us when we eat and when we drink. We are remembering and proclaiming that this death was necessary for my sins. And then we participate in all that he did for us. So his death becomes in place of our death. His resurrection and life becomes our resurrection and our life. So when we celebrate the table, we are confessors of Jesus, the one and only who saves, the object of our faith. And it's something outside of us that we eat and we drink, that we receive, that it comes into us, and we do it again and again. And like that Passover meal was commanded of Israel to do it perpetually, we must perpetually return to the gospel. We're gospel people. We treasure it. We live it. We proclaim it. We remember it again and again and again. I mean, that never grow old for us. So we remember his death. We participate in what he did for us. And then we spiritually feed in that moment. By the Spirit, we feed. So just like food you will eat after service today, you need to eat. And if you don't eat, you will die. We will die without eating. In the same way, we partake of Christ. We feed on what he has done by his grace. And so spiritually, we partake of Christ. It supplies for us the life that we need as we abide and rest in Him in faith. And it's something that is tangible. It's real, right? It's real drink. It's real food. It's spiritual, but we are receiving something, a grace required for us that comes and gives us life. So we feed spiritually. And then we also, we also do this together. 
We, we partake of the Lord's table together, church. That's why we do this on Sunday, because it communicates something about our unity and our fellowship in God together. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are ma- who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we fellowship and participate in what Christ has done personally, but we fellowship and participate in what Christ has done through the Spirit together. So we celebrate this, affirming Christ's work for us and our unity as believers. And so that's why we're, we're charged even by scriptures to examine ourselves, to be sure we are, we are right with God and we are right with one another. That we examine our unity because we want to steward it. We want to steward that. So maybe that is a, a challenge for you this morning to consider. How are you? Are you in right relationship with your brothers and sisters? If not, make that right. Let the table, the participation we have together draw you to that. And then we anticipate. So we remember Christ's death. We feed spiritually. We do this together and we anticipate. Look at verse 25. Jesus concludes his teaching. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So every time we partake of the Lord's table... We eat, we drink, and we remember, and we anticipate. We look forward to that day. We just heard that phrase, that day, in chapter 13 when Jesus was speaking of that day, that hour when he returned. And so when we eat, we look back and we consider all the finished work of Jesus for us, and we eat and we drink and we look ahead with hope of Jesus' return. Jesus has all of this planned as he's sharing this meal with his disciples, and he does that for us. There's something we look back to, and there's something we anticipate as well. And we do this, and we do this intentionally, and and here across Grace, we do this each week. Now, once a year, Easter week, Passion Week, we consider what Jesus did on the Passover week and Good Friday and Easter. We remember that deeply. Um, but we, we take communion each week, and there's freedom, um, I think, in how a church takes communion and how often, it, we, as we just read, for as often as you eat and drink. So that could be a variety of ways. Some of the argument around that is that we, you, know, you don't want it to become old or sterile. Um, I get that. Um, that can happen. But there are certain things that we do each week, like singing, that we we could become rote and sterile, but we do do it. So there is a challenge for us that we would prepare our hearts, but we want to remember weekly. We want to consider what he has done weekly. We want to anticipate weekly. Now chapter 14, we're going to be in chapter 14 more next week. And as, you, as we've already read, there, is some, there are some disheartening things that we read about the disciples in this chapter. It's a pretty bleak chapter. The story of the Lord's table is only three verses, but it's flanked by us being aware of Judas's betrayal. Next week, Jesus is going to foretell that all the disciples are going to, going to fall away and abandon him. And Jesus alone is surrounded by, by all of those who are going to deny him. 
I mean, consider who's at this table at this moment, at this meal, who's invited. How did these disciples get around this table? Because they were good, because they were rich, because they were smart or righteous or holy. The eating together is so significant, and it's so significant value in this culture. It was an invitation. There was communication of intimacy when you ate with somebody. That's why Jesus was, was blasted for, for eating with sinners and tax collectors. He was partaking and participating with sinners. I mean, it's not too far from ways that we still experience that in our culture. I mean, if we see Cindy maybe eating at lunch with Samantha, and we know that those two people should never eat together, there would be chatter among the teenagers about that. Or, or think about that person on your street that you avoid, and now consider them inviting them over for dinner on Friday into your home. There's, there's a way we still kind of resist it. And yet Jesus is doing something like next level here. Not only is he inviting them to eat with them, he's in bringing an invitation of them to partake of his very person. He's saying, who I am is yours. And why you get to this table is not because of your merit, but because I have invited you to my table. Sinners. Weak cowards, strugglers. Jesus invites undeserving individuals to his table because of his grace, because of his love, because of his mercy. As Mark 14 unfolds, we we see that all are going to abandon and Jesus remains alone. He only is the one worthy of salvation, bringing salvation to his people, and they're going to receive it by grace alone. The table is a powerful reminder for us that our welcome, that our partaking of Christ is not for those who've earned it, but those who put faith upon his blood and what he's done for us. Several years ago, I heard D.A. Carson, a little video clip of him speaking at a conference. He's a, a seminary professor and author and theologian, and he tells this little story about the past, first Passover meal to bring us a little bit into the, the confidence we have in the blood. And I thought it may be appropriate just to draw us to this story. He begins this. He says this. Picture two Jews, this first Passover night, by the name of Smith and Brown. Remarkably Jewish names, he says. The day before the first Passover, they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well... God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood and put the blood in the lintel? Haven't you done that? You're all ready and you've packed. You're going to eat your whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened around here lately. You know, flies and rivers turning into blood. It's pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. You know, it's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've only got one, and I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight, and I, I know what God says, but, and I put the blood there, but, but this, is, this is pretty scary. I'm just going to be glad when it's all over. And the other responds, bring it on. 
I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. And which one lost his son? Well, the answer, of course, is is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God could ever love us enough? If God could ever care for us enough after we've been stupid or sinful or rebellious, even after being a Christian for 40 years, what are we going to say? Oh God, I tried hard. You know, I did my best. It was a bad moment. No. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So church, our assurance, what is our assurance? What is our hope? What is our confidence? When we feel unworthy, when maybe even this morning you're going to sit and partake of that bread and that juice thinking, geez, really wrecked it this week. We lift our eyes, our heart off ourselves, and we look to Christ, the Lamb of God, whose sufficient sacrifice once and for all were for His people. Sinners, unworthy, undeserving, but He set His love upon you and upon me. That is our assurance. Mark 14 shows us it is not by the faithfulness of our works or our ability to earn a place at His table, but the faithfulness of our Savior who welcomes us to it. His broken body, His blood poured out, His life for our life. And that's what makes the table such a joy. Though it needs to be done soberly, though it needs to be done reverently, it is a joy. Church, it is a joy because we come to share in Christ. Jesus is there saying, all I have is yours. I'm giving it to you. You're you're cleansed. You're loved by me. And there is gratitude that we've been invited to that table. And we anticipate that one day, as Revelation 19 tells us, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That supper that we're anticipating. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. But this blessing are for those who have taken refuge in Jesus' blood. I don't know if you're here this morning and, and you have not yet done that. Have you taken refuge in the Lamb's blood today? Meaning, have you put your faith upon Jesus Christ where that judgment day when judgment will come to each and every one of us, there must be evidence of blood being covering that individual, atoned for their sins. If you have not placed your faith upon Jesus, there's an invitation today for you. Put your hope in Christ Jesus. Look alone to the sufficiency of Christ's life and death and resurrection for your forgiveness this morning. During the Passover meal, we end with this. They would sing, as mentioned, a section of the Psalms, and it's likely that refers to Psalms 116 to 118. In our text, just following verse 25, it says that just following the meal, they, they sang a hymn. I don't know if they sang this hymn during the meal or after the meal. Maybe. This section is from Psalm 118. 
Maybe they sang this, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live. And will proclaim that the Lord, what the Lord has done. Saints, when we, when we partake of the Lord's table, when we come and worship, we, we realize that we will not die, but we will live because of what the mighty things God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, His broken body, His blood poured out, His rising from the dead. His life so we may live. And we proclaim, we proclaim what the Lord has done at his table. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can live because you died and you rose. And the way that we receive that life, that promise, is by placing our faith, turning from our sin and and placing our faith and our hope upon the sufficiency of your blood, your broken body, your, board, your blood poured out for us, your resurrected life, Jesus. Teach us, Lord, as we take the table to, to remember deeply. Teach us, Lord, as we take your table, as your people to, to, to remember the, the feast, the, the fullness of what we get to take upon because of what you have done. We could feed, Lord, by your grace upon you, Jesus. And teach us, Lord, as we partake of your table that we, we don't do this alone. We are in community with your people, fellowship with all the redeemed, Lord, here in this room and all of those outside of this room, all over the world, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to anticipate as we take your table. Lord, as we partake, Lord, let it, let it be received reverently and soberly, but let it, let it, God, draw us to a celebration of what you've accomplished for us. The right hand of the Lord has done mighty things. Lord, you, we will not die, but we live. And we proclaim what you have done, Jesus, again and again and again. May that not grow old, Lord. So fill our heart with joy this morning. Fill our heart with confidence. And if, Lord, if there's others here this morning that have not yet trusted in the sufficiency of your blood. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you this morning. They trust in you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.